This show is part of the Darkmore Podcast Network. To join our community Discord or see more content from our members, visit darkmorepodcasts.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dragon Mind, a tabletop discussion podcast brought to you by Incendium D&D. I'm John Tanaka, and we're here to look through the infinite lenses of TTRPGs to discover our best selves through gaming. In today's episode, Ian and I discuss how to have a powerful opening session, resolving self-criticism as a DM, and designing meaningful quests. And hey, if you're interested in joining a future conversation live, we now stream recordings of this podcast over at twitch.tv slash incendiumdm. So without further ado, let's get started. Hey, John, how's it going? How you doing? It's been a while. It's been like yeah, a, no, it's it's yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> been like a been like a few days or something, right? Even though I just spoke to you yesterday, but it's been like a week since we last recorded, and uh, I've been thinking. I am currently starting my uh, new campaign, my custom world campaign in the world of Corsara, or rather the world of Marin, but the continent's Corsara. But I never, cal- I never mentioned Marin, so I don't. I might as well just ignore that part, right? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm working on this uh, this campaign of mine, and I've uh, of course, you know, hit a few few uh, roadblocks. Uh, I I feel like I'm pretty good at running a campaign. Like when I get into it, like if I get into the middle of it, I, I'm pretty good at keeping it going. What I find the most difficulty with is actually starting the campaign and how to make my players feel interested and immersed from the get-go. And I feel like there's a lot of different ways to do this. Uh, the, the classic way of, of starting your campaign and getting the party together is through the use of a tavern. And this, this kind of follows the Adventurer's Guild model, but also like the like Mercenary Guild model. Uh, where you're adventurers for hire and you all get the same job and you happen to be meeting together. And of course, everyone wants to meet in a big public space so they don't get mugged uh, by these adventurers or whatever. And uh, they and, you know, you all meet in a tavern as per typical. And, you know, there's a lot of tropes or whatever with the tavern associated with that. But um, I, I find that that one is less interesting to me when I'm trying to start a long form campaign. Uh, when I'm trying to start one that is going to have a, a large story arc with multiple smaller arcs in between uh, that reflect the character's development emotionally and uh, personally. And so I don't really like the tavern model. Uh, I think it's I think it's good. I see the benefits of it for like, you know, dungeon crawls like or one shots or something like that, or even just like smaller campaigns. Um, but in terms of uh, in terms of starting a new long form campaign, even with episodic sessions where each session or two sessions is like a closed uh, beginning, middle and end. Uh, I, I find that this is, it, it's not the best way to do it. And you know what, as I'm speaking about it, um, what I have in mind right now is that my, you know, my party, the party is going to meet similarly, but it's not in a tavern. 
And it's it's like if, if my uh, party was meeting the quest giver, the quest giver in this case will be a noble. This isn't exactly a surprise uh, for your campaign. I know you're in the, you're playing in it, um, but the quest giver is a noble and you're going to be meeting with the noble, you know, at a place that they've ordained. But, you know, that's not much different than a tavern. And I feel like that's part of the reason that I'm struggling because I want my players to feel like there's a good reason that their their characters would get together and hang out and and adventure together afterwards and stuff. But, you know, I guess I guess, you know, secretly, even to myself, I've been struggling with the idea that I've just reskinned the tavern. Uh, and so I, I, how do I how do I make a better introduction for my players? How do I create something without turning it into the um, uh, what what was it called? The opposite of episodic. Do you remember what that was? Ongoing. Uh, ongoing. Yeah. Without making it an ongoing campaign where we are, we have the player characters meet and they interact and stuff, and we don't ever actually get anything like done. It's just like it's just pure social interaction, and there's no unifying quest or something. Like I, I, I don't know. I, like I said, I feel like I struggle with this kind of thing. And I feel like a lot of other DMs out there struggle with this too. Yeah. I've, I've heard this concern before of like, you know, I don't want my adventure to just start in a tavern. Why does it feel like every campaign starts with meeting in a tavern? And honestly, I've tried a few different things. The reason like I still have a lot of my, stories or campaigns start in a tavern is because it works (laughs) um because like i find that a lot of times if you have a quest giver and you i there are times i even just ask my players please create characters that would be willing to take a job and go on a quest you know um because it especially like we we've even been finding out with this new game like depending on if the DM sets up the unifying force, not every player imagines a character that would be on board with that. Uh, like one of, I, I've given a lot of praise uh, very recently to the group patron model, which is something that debuted in Eberron formally. Like I, I it's been something that's been used in like since D and D started, but uh, it's also been kind of like created to be setting agnostic in Tasha's cauldron. But one of the honestly another way that you could just do it is just ask your players so you're surrendering a little bit of control but you know it's i don't think it's a bad idea to be upfront with your players and say listen this is the kind of thing i had in mind i want you guys to adventure together think of a reason why your character would do this and kind of put the not only the work on them but the creative freedom on them a lot of times if if you as the DM are kind of dictating the unifying reason why the players would be involved, in a way it starts to take away their ability to tell their own story, all right? Um, so now there are a few other ways you can go about it. Um, one way I found is creating a big enough enemy worth fighting for. So for example... Assuming that your players created somewhat heroic personalities or are at least willing to work for gold, like something where it's like, you know, 
they all are in a, a village for just some reason, like either they're just passing through or they just stopped at the tavern for the night and a monster attacks the village and really starts like obviously becoming a problem. Then they might find out, oh, this monster has been like really harassing us for the past month or so. Um, we're willing to pay all of you to go destroy it. Like it might be that they become a group or it might be after that they all find out they're, they were all traveling to the same city for personal reasons, maybe, but they start to get to know each other along the way. So there, there are ways to do it without having them just meet in a tavern with a quest giver. Um, but I think that you kind of have to be upfront and transparent and clear and repetitive about the fact that they need to create adventurers that would adventure with someone else. And it's, it's one of those things where I can't remember who said it, but a lot of times when you're teaching, the student doesn't really hear it until the seventh repetition. So if you mention it once, that's one thing. Um, and it also is useful to do it across mediums. So I know like for your latest game, Ian, you texted us some of the things those texts also got lost over time because if you text us like a month ago, you know, and, and then we also have like dozens of other topics after it, it like loses what we were thinking of. And also like it's different to like say it or present it visually or, you know, so there's there's a few different ways. I don't know if I've given a clear answer yet. I don't know if you have any any thoughts based on what I just said. Well, I mean, you know. I think this is one of those questions that doesn't really have a definitive answer. So, you know, starting with a tavern might work for your table, starting with a slow buildup where maybe each of the characters have their own scene that leads into the like the common um, moment instigating moment for uh, their party could also be an option. I've tried doing that, actually. Uh, it, it had mixed results, to be honest. I think uh part of it part of the issue was that we had a like brand new player as well like completely new um and i was telling them about their scene and they were just like so so what uh i want to go like they were a rogue right and they were checking out this uh game that these uh these gnomes were playing in the corner of the of the tavern uh and i was like describing it and i was like you you have like some stake in this or whatever and it's like uh and she like it went completely over her head uh over their head and um they just were like so i i sneak over to see what game they're playing and it's like you I said, I said, you know what game they're playing, <laughs> you know, but anyways, that's a, uh, that's just a completely different anecdote. My point being that I think, I think it really depends, you know, it depends on what you want out of your game and it depends on how willing your players are to take things into their own hands, like you said. And I think this is a good point. I think what I'm going to probably try to do is even though I have this quest giver, this like potential group patron as well, um, you know, it'll be up to the players to decide how how their character becomes invested in the story. And I think that's I think that's a good thing because like if we look at some other you know examples, uh, a popular example is in Matt Mercer's uh, Critical Role, of course. Um, I believe at the start of campaign two, he basically did have 
scenes, like individual scenes for each character, or maybe if the characters knew each other, then the two of those characters. And they all, I think, were going to a circus, all of them, like coincidentally. And that was how he like got them to meet up, basically. Uh, because not only were they fulfilling the, that criteria you mentioned, which was willingness to adventure, you know, willingness to, to fight or, or do something for the common good or be a hero or be courageous at least. Um, but they, you know, they were also willing to work together. You know, they weren't afraid to work together with another person, even if that meant meeting up and, uh, and getting to know each other more slowly. Now, of course, Matt, Matt Mercer's campaign is ongoing, so it's not quite, I mean, I, I think each episode has a decent, um, beginning, middle, end, but I don't. I wouldn't say they're defined. And sometimes it's more like stopping in the middle, and that's because they have such a time limit as a you know as a stream, uh, as a show. They they have a time limit that they have to adhere to. So that's one thing. But yeah, I think I think that's pretty much how I'm gonna do it. Is like basically you all heard this quest like from one way or another, and you decided to take up the job offer like that. Uh, I do think my group patron, my initial group patron, that is, uh, which was the Sentinel Corps. Um, I think it felt a little flat, to be honest. Like I wanted this to be a little bit more of a, you know, a group patron where everyone is like kind of, you know, into it. But unfortunately, or fortunately, it, it seemed like I had designed it without really thinking about what characters um, my players were going to be making. So my initial intention with it was to use that as like the springboard to get like a bunch of like a series of quests going and stuff. Um, but I think I might have to, you know, change how I thought about that and, and change that idea, maybe keep it for later or something um, or something else. But, you know, uh, it's, it's just so important to me that the campaign starts on the right foot, you know? And I think, I think that puts a lot of pressure on DMs to make sure that they aren't, you know, leading to any disappointment when they start the campaign. So, all right. It's going to sound like a criticism, but it's really not. Um, because like it's, it's a bunch of, it's one of those hindsight is 2020 sort of things. Um, I was talking to another player uh, that's going to be playing in this game about why the Sentinel core fell flat because it did. <laughs> Like that is your, your instinct is correct. Um, and part of the reason is we were asked to create character concepts before going into the session zero. Um, so one of the things like, like you had even mentioned it in our session zero is that the Sentinel core was like Corsara's version of the Swift guard, which is a, or uh, an adventurer's guild that I use as the unifying, um, hub in my latest custom campaign which seems to be well received you know um and part of it was before the first session zero i i'm pretty sure i'm remembering this correctly this was over two years ago so like i i could be getting details fuzzy but i'm pretty sure i asked that nobody like come in with character concepts in mind so that way i could guide them through the game structure that I had realized through experience and through a lot of mistakes 
you know, would best serve the type of environment we were playing in, like, like the best way to use roll 20, because we were all distanced and, um, the best frequency of play where the players would get the most out of it. And I would feel like I'm have enough time to prep the experience that would lead to the best gameplay and the best storytelling. Um, so when they came in, I said, you're going to be a member of the Swift Guard. There's no, there's no arguing with that. Also, as a, an organization, the Swift Guard was not at all fleshed out. There was very few details about it because what it would allow the players to do is give a lot of freedom to what they could do with the Swift Guard. And basically, the I, I told them, like your motivation, like why you're in the Swift Guard is to get paid and because you get food and lodging like for free. You don't have to do that. And what you're the reason why you're adventuring for money can be up to you. So one of I'm pretty sure this has been revealed. So I don't think I'm, I'm blowing a secret. One of the characters, the reason she's a part of the Swift Guard is so that she can um, donate the money to an orphanage that she grew up in. So there was like a very personal reason what, what the money meant. Um, for another character, he was uh, a, like, a, like a scholar, like a librarian. And it, the, his, the story that he came up with was the, um, his mentor, who was like the head librarian, said, you know, you can't live your life in a library. You have to get out and see the real world. So yeah, you have to join the Swift Guard. Yeah, you have to get paid, but there is a greater purpose behind it. And I, I think that for creating an adventurer's guild, like a group patron, the more, first of all, the more they can come and leave, the easier it is. I think one of the things where we felt a little stuck was the fact that we had to join a division. And by joining a division, now we're like more into it than our our characters might initially be okay with. You know, they like for my character, he's he's a circus performer. He's the only reason he's adventuring is the goal to get enough gold to pay the bills for the circus. Like it's not about the adventuring. It's about the outcome on the other side of it. And the other thing is downtime becomes like this huge story building thing and you don't have to see in game what's happening in the downtime um especially if it's like individual so to be honest i know that matt mercer does individual scenes where he there are times he'll even ask players to leave the room for me um as a player being on the on one side of it i always felt that like really like either boring or exclusionary or and also sometimes like it actually creates less trust if everyone can see it. So there are times where it's totally cool to start a campaign kind of in the middle of things. I'm going to butcher this pronunciation in media race in media res in media res. Is that, is that the Latin thing for how epics go? Um, oh, I, is this a phrase in Latin? It's a, it's a, it's a phrase for storytelling. Um, let me look it up, but it's um, Latin. It is Latin. Uh, okay. It's kind of like mise-en-scene is French, but oh. in media... Yeah, I'll be yeah, honest, I haven't heard this res. one. Uh, yeah, which is Latin. Bring, for bring the mic closer. So this is like when you read the Odyssey. Um, when the Odyssey starts, Odysseus has already come back from Troy. He's already a war hero, and he's held captive by this demigoddess. And I'm pretty sure 
yeah so he captive oh no <laughs> but um like it's not starting with odysseus as a kid and now we see how odysseus is a teenage it doesn't start at the beginning of things it starts in the middle of things star wars is the same way you know like even though the original very first movie was just called star wars later on it was given episode four a new hope before episode one had even come out. So it began in the middle of things. Things had already started happening. So I also think that when you have a session one, it should be about the characters getting to know each other. Not necessarily, you don't have to like have an individual scene that like gets them together. You know, it, it starts with them together. And then either after session one or before session one, we can make an offering and figure out, you know, how did they come together? What's the background reasoning? And a lot of times that background reasoning might even um, come out in play. So I know that like uh, yesterday we had kind of like a setup session between Shay and Anton. Um, and one of the questions is, do they know each other at the beginning of the campaign? And the answer ended up being, yeah. Um, and the thing was that Shay recognized some of Anton's maybe suppressed talents uh, in his circus act that would lead to him being a useful companion in an adventure. So when I, the way I see it, when session one starts, Shay and Anton show up together, but we don't. And if somebody asks, oh, how do you know each other? We can briefly say it. But if we wanted to extend that scene out, that's even something that the player, uh, Shay's player and I could just come up with together. Uh, I think there's a there's a huge part where like one of the pieces of downtime in, in Gears that I find super cool is that same player has like an 80 page document of what happens in between various adventures. And I have almost no input to what's happening. So there will be times where she'll ask me, is there, uh, you know, I'm thinking about adding this part to the city. Is that OK? And I'll be like, sure. Or she may ask, what was this country called or what was this village that we visited? And I'll let her know. And then I'll review the document. And if there are any continuity errors or things that conflict, I'll make notes and let her know. But then she gets to be the one that fixes it. So there's this huge storytelling freedom because all I've done is make the environment. It's now her ability to explore her character within that environment. Yeah. Yeah. Like giving the, I mean, that's player agency really, you know, like player agency is something we talk about a lot on here where it's like, it's like a sacred thing. You know, you, you need to make sure that it's not interrupted if at all possible, unless things go too far, you need to make sure that, you know, the players feel like they are able to affect the world through their characters there's a lot of different ways that it manifests. And it sounds like this is one of those ways. So <clears throat> yeah, the Sentinel core, it fell flat because, and, and I can see it in hindsight, like you said, because um, it was kind of an afterthought, you know, I, I was like, okay, but like, how am I actually gonna like keep them going? And I really liked what you did with the, with the Swift guard. And uh, I can see that you put in a little bit more time uh, like the Sentinel core, you know, came in so late in the game, like so late in the uh, the building of the world. It wasn't something that I had in mind initially, even though I, you know, I'm really excited for it because um, 
it seems like a neat little thing that could really flesh out a campaign or at least uh, grant some interesting like boons to the characters. Um, but yeah, it was kind of an afterthought, whereas you had started it out initially with like, this is my adventurer's guild from, you know, day one of planning your campaign or, or your setting. So I, I can see really where this where this was like that. I think I think I'll probably retract that uh, that option for the most part, at least for now. I don't know. I I don't want to box my players into like choosing the Adventurers Guild. And I think that's the important thing, which is why it was such a hassle to try and negotiate during session zero how it would work for your characters as opposed to how your characters would work for it. And uh, and I think that's I think that's a good sign that, you know, that we care about each other and we wanted each other to have a good time and we want to play by the rules of the world or uh, anything like that. But it's, uh, you know, it's also a sign that sometimes you design something and it doesn't go as intended. And I think that was actually the theme of last uh, the last time we spoke as well uh, regarding emotional tension, um, except this is real. So, uh, you know, very similar uh, themes, it would appear. And, and to just to give a little bit of like depth into looking under the hood of a lot of the design choices I made when developing my custom world, I had come off of with some of these players a campaign where they kept declining my story hooks where I would basically be like, oh, this village is in trouble. And they'd be like, not my problem. And then they'd move on. And then later I'd be like, oh, this village burned. And they're like, why? I'm like, well, because you didn't pick up the story hook. Like the monster ate everybody. <laughs> and then they would feel really bad about it and then go on to the next thing. And I'd be like, all right, well, there's this bad thing about to happen. And they'd be like, not my problem. And then they'd move on. And then the bad thing would keep happening to the village and they would get frustrated about it. So, um... The difference is this group is a little more motivated. Um, so when I developed the group patron model, a lot of it was, you know, I asked them, please, you're, you're going to bite the story hook. That's why you're playing, right? And that's why each adventure is self-contained so that they don't have to feel like compelled to come back. Um, it allows a lot of really cool things like rotating characters around rotating players around because that's always fun to see how like one team dynamic flows really well and then another you take like you rotate out one player with another and then all of a sudden like the team dynamic gets clunky um there's some really fun social experimentation in it but i i think the other difference is that with our characters um we have some decent story hooks and some decent goals already set out and it's also okay to have asymmetrical motivation. So what I mean by that is like having that discussion, the character Shay has like a goal. Like, I don't think anyone's going to listen to this, but like follow the vision, you know? So she has a vision that she's following. My character just wants to be helpful. Totally cool if he doesn't have a big deep reveal or, you know, I'm I'm just happy to play. So I'm cool following that story, you know, without having my own thing that I'm trying to accomplish. Um, and then a lot of times the other thing is the purpose is revealed through play. 
So it was uh, the, the best example I have was actually that same group I just complained about their first campaign. They were kind of joking. They were more of a shenanigan group doing kind of silly builds and characters. And there there was a moment where we were playing Tyranny of Dragons and I, I was you know, reviewing each of their characters and their backstories. And one of them talked about having adoptive parents. And, you know, this was, I was a little less emotionally mature. So I didn't, it, it was a very interesting outcome, but, you know, the, they were basically like, oh, these, these cultists, you know, this cult of the dragon, they're, they're so silly. And then they got back to that character's hometown and found out that it had been attacked by the cult and the adoptive mother had been killed in the raid. That, united all of them together to be like this cult needs to be stopped so sometimes you know especially if there's an overarching villain um that unites the purpose but also it's kind of like when you watch um like supernatural you still have a monster of the week you still have a quest of the week but throughout that quest or the beginning and end of it there are these sprinkles of larger forces moving on in the background that you can kind of like build up to. Um, but I, I really think, especially if, since we're talking about starting adventures, like, like first session, totally cool to present a very simple kind of goal neutral quest for the characters to get to know each other. And then a lot of times they'll find purpose with each other throughout like even like we're talking about a first adventure but it could also be like a second or a third or a fourth adventure you know like for i'm reflecting on Garrus, it took them like four sessions to really warm up to an overarching story uh which i thought was kind of kind of interesting yeah yeah for sure uh and that's my goal with this one is that i want to present multiple potential BBEGs or, you know, villainous arcs or plots that are going on um, and see which one sticks, you know, because I, I and I tried to set myself up for this. I, I put out a survey, uh, you know, uh, I put out a I put out a survey saying, like, what would you be interested in, you know, being the supernatural slash, uh, uh, you know, exotic forces in the world, extra extra natural forces. And everybody was just like, whatever. And I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> you don't want to give me any more than that? You know, and they're just like, no, we're cool with anything. And it's like, oh, OK, sure. Like, because I thought, you know, you know, as a player myself, I find it more interesting when uh, when I get to choose what kind of like extra extra natural forces are more likely to come up uh in my character's story like with Moo, you know, he's a ranger. He's a fey wanderer. So I expect there to be. Faye at some point in uh, in the story, at least I would hope so. Uh, I just I feel like that's pretty overt. Um, but this group is just like, you know, whatever you do, you you know, we're interested in whatever you have to tell us, whatever story you want to build. And, and that's nice, you know, but, you know, it dodges the point of my question, which was like, give me give me something, <laughs> you know, something that I can latch on to. So what I'm hoping on is uh, hoping on what I'm hoping for is that during these upcoming sessions, which are going to be pretty biweekly or fortnightly rather, rather, you know, we'll we'll get the chance to figure out what seems like an interesting possible overarching story or at least a first arc for the for the campaign. Because honestly, I could see because I'm not running this as Curse of Strahd, I'm not running this as, you know, 
minds of Fandelver or, or, you know, hot DQ Horde of the dragon queen. Like this is an infinite possibility campaign. Like you guys could go from being country bumpkins, uh, fighting off where rats or whatever, uh, to ending up being like in the courts of uh Descor pleading for the safety of a town or something like that. Um, that's like under siege or, or something, you know, like there's so much possibility and it allows it to be that your characters can experience whatever, you know, like anything and everything is, is on the table. On the other hand, of course, I also made it clear that if you want to change your character, if you want to do a different character at some point during the campaign, then that's fine because I want people to also be able to play and try characters that they've been wanting to try out, you know, like uh, I've never played a rogue personally, or I guess I have, but it was only a soul knife and I, I, it was just for one shot. So, you know, that was one thing I wanted to try more of because I like the concept of a soul knife um, order of scribes wizard, you know, Jasper, I wanted to play him a lot because I had a really nice, cool character concept, but I never had a chance to try it until recently. Um, or, uh, you know, I have all these characters in my in my mind that are like of us, like each one is a different class and I'm giving them all epithets. That is to say uh, names that are like titles, um, but these aren't like official. These are like just for my own organization. Um, but I, I just like I want to play every single class at some point, because otherwise I just don't know what I'm talking about when I when I discuss the mechanics of a, of a character or 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 a class or a background or anything. So that's why I want out of Corsara is that you guys have the freedom to choose which characters you want to play and when, as long as you let me know in advance. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's good. I think this is, it's a good thing that we're talking about this because um, I, I felt like there was a little bit of unresolved uh, tension for me in terms of like my ability as a, as a uh, DM and a storyteller uh, in the case of like, trying to start something, something meaningful. And I think I have a better idea of how I'm going to approach this in the future. And I think I might put the Sentinel core on the shelf for a little while, at least, unless we start like something else. So to, to go back to what you had said about the question of supernatural forces, to me, what it really spoke to it. And I, I did talk to, um, Again, I just having a few conversations over the past few days with different players. Um, one of the things we mentioned on the last episode was the, the tension between yin and yang forces, right? Yang being active. Um, we've actually identified this with different language. We used to call it like proactive versus reactive players, right? Um, where I, I actually prefer the yin and yang label because I think it, it hits the core of it a little more. Yang being something that's that's active, yin being something that holds space, you know. Um, and I think what what happened is, like from my experiences as a DM and as a player, you tend way more to the yang side of it, being that like if you make an attack roll, it's not going to be I roll my dice, I hit with the crossbow. There's going to be like a paragraph description about how you load the ball, where you're aiming towards. And all of that is very exciting. Uh, there's a lot of times I also tend toward the, the young approach of, you know, a lot of this stuff. So uh, for one of the things we noticed, though, is 
a lot. This this party is almost entirely yin in terms of their outlook for it, because our goal is we want to give you the space to tell a story you've thought up and then we find meaning in it. So it's and there will definitely be times I am sure like for me personally, I'll start in a yin place and I will shift to the yang place. Like as soon as I start, uh, start, get going, um, start to get going, <laughs> start, get going. Um, and it's also kind of interesting, you know, the way class mechanics play into that dynamic too. Like, so what's interesting I find about Bard, which is the character class I'm going to be playing is that in terms of personality, a lot of times the memes and everything show them being very young, right? Where, and this, this bard is going to be no exception, super flamboyant, you know, uh, super silly and out there. Um, for those of you who would be, be aware of this, I'm basically playing Silvando from Dragon Quest XI, uh, definitely 10 out of 10 character concept. But in terms of mechanics, he tends to be a little bit more yin in that, like, Bard isn't really about doing the big flashy thing. Bard is about setting someone else up to do the big flashy thing. So the mechanics and spells that they have as part of their kit, just thinking of them, fairy fire, heroism, dissonant whispers, um, even something like vicious mockery, which in a way is a protection spell because you're giving, you're giving an enemy disadvantage to attack. It's setting up the more young mechanics of rogue and fighter, which are about trying to hit the thing and deal damage and letting them hit to the best of their abilities. So, and again, I think that if you don't have a story arc in mind, the players will find purpose and find meaning in it. Uh, The other thing is the Sentinel Corps, even if we're not a part of it, that doesn't mean they're not a faction in the world. So the Sentinel Corps might be something we eventually join, or they might even do something where it's like, you know, we have to ask them for help. Like, oh, this city or this town needs defenses. And they're like, all right, well, you have to join us for six months as part of, you know, a deal or something. So um, and they could also always just be a client where even if we're not a part of it, that doesn't mean we're not doing a job for them. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of uh, Sword Art Online. Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, when Kirito was, uh, you know, spoilers, I guess, but it's like an old show at this point. And it's so tropish. Uh, <laughs> Kirito's like, he's like a lone wolf kind of guy. You know, he's a solo player. He doesn't want to join a guild. And then he ends up having to join the guild because uh, like against his will, basically, because of uh, the circumstances that he is going through that he needs. I forget what the exact circumstances were. All I remember is the abridged version of this. So, um, <laughs> but basically uh, Kirito's like, dang it, I'm going to have to join this stupid guild, aren't I? (laughs) Like, oh yeah, you know what it was? Uh, He got beat. Uh, He got beat in a fight. And the the terms of the fight were like, if you lose, you have to join our guild because everybody wants Kirito in their guild because Kirito's like the strongest uh, character in the game, basically, because he solos all the time and he just grinds and grinds and grinds for XP. It's one of those nerds. Uh, And um, so, yeah, like... (laughs) This kind of reminds me of that, where it's like, I just imagine a scenario where like the party becomes like powerful enough to the point where they're like contenders cons- seen as like a um a driving force 
in, in the in the world of uh, of Marin and the and the Sentinel Corps being the officially sanctioned like group from from Descor, which is uh, one of the cities um, is just like, yeah, we need those guys. You know that the we definitely need their help for this, and I can imagine like this general being like begrudging, like he's just like, no, I I hate those guys. We just, why would we ever need their help? We don't need their help. And then he and then they go and try and like I don't know fight a dragon or something, and then they get their butts whooped, and then they come back and it's like I guess we need their help. <laughs> so uh, that actually sounds pretty funny to me, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to do that. So I don't know if this will actually be a spoiler. And if it is, it'll probably be like six months down the line when everybody's forgot I talked about it. Um, but yeah, anyways, I think I think this is helpful. You know, I as I, I feel like it's very easy to criticize yourself as a DM. And, uh, you know, I am probably one of those people who just like honestly and always criticizes their decisions and feels, you know, a little bit of, uh, you know, sympathy for myself, feel sorry for myself when I make a poor decision or something like that. But, you know, I've been trying to push past that lately and uh, trying to make things, you know, less serious, I guess. So like, um, I think uh, Alan Watts was the one who said it. He's a philosopher, a Zen philosopher. And he, he said, um, you should always take things sincerely, but you shouldn't take them seriously because when you take them seriously, that's what leads to suffering. Um, that's yeah. brilliant. I want to put that like on a t-shirt. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the other thing is like, even so first to go off of what you just said, the Alan Watts quote, Giris, I said was a, when I said I said it was a more serious, immersive setting, that doesn't mean it's not fun. And that doesn't mean that we aren't lighthearted while playing it, even though the events can be dark and be serious. Um, and I think that has to do with the format. Um, I think I've mentioned it before, but the way that we play, we interface with the game is um, almost an exercise of meditation because we have music that evokes a certain mood we have a visual that allows us to activate that visual sense you know a lot of us are very intentioned in how we're sitting and how how our touch is um taking in that information and stuff so it like a lot of times even when there's something very intense happening it almost feels like meditative and that to me is what immersion is all about it's like when you're doing yoga you know a lot of the the meditative practices it it feels immersed in the experience and i think a lot of times dms confuse that they they need to like they feel they need to have their players attention directed somewhere very specific and if they don't feel like their character at all times they're doing something wrong and there can be that separation of you know i'm i'm as a person i feel meditative and immersed in the fact that i'm doing a story thing but I, I am separate from what my character is doing and how I'm directing my character's story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, that's kind of funny because I tend to walk that line of whether or not I feel like my character. Like with Rowan, you know, I literally felt like, at least to the extent that I could, the the pain that she was going through. With Moo, I think you could see it on my face. The last session we had, you know, Moo gets one shot and 
there's not anything I can do. I already did the big, you know, the big story moment thing where I totally disrupted certain potential plans of the, of, of Winkum. But, you know, after that, I was hoping to hit him with something pretty devastating, but it was just, he's just too fast, you know? And, uh, and he doesn't take any damage and he doesn't care about forced movement. He doesn't care about, I mean, not to say he won't be forced like to move or whatever if I tried to, but he does, he doesn't care about spike growth, you know, like uh, 8D4, damn it, whatever. Like, you know, he'll just move through that. And, um, his movement is so fast, so high that like, it doesn't matter. He'll still get to me, even though it's difficult terrain. So it's like, I had plans, but like, honestly, I really expected it to go that way anyway. Uh, especially since I didn't really, I mean, I had two people that could have tanked for me like once maybe, but, uh, you know, besides that, I don't think we were ever going to deal any significant damage, uh, to, uh, to him. And, uh, yeah, you know, like you could see it on my face when Moo went down, I was like very immersed in that moment. I took my time trying to compose a, an appropriate, um, paragraph because they are paragraphs, you know, more than two sentences, that's a paragraph. Um, and then, uh, you know, just to basically, if this was going to be the end, I wanted it to be a, a decent one. And even though I know it wasn't the end because we still, this was the halfway point of the campaign, you know, it still needed to feel, you know, significant, I guess. Uh, so that was, that was how I approached it. Um, the second thing you were going to talk about, I think was, uh, more about sincerity and seriousness, but I, I don't yeah. think um... I, I I did remember it in the middle. Um, it was just you can definitely bungle a session one and have an awesome campaign, and and I mean if you just look at it from the amount of experience you have running stuff too, like I distinctly remember monday campaign three which was after campaign two it was better than campaign two still not as good as campaign one and largely that had to do again with scheduling it had to do with the fact that a lot of the players would were really excited at the beginning and then stopped showing up four sessions in and then they'd want to come back for a session and then they'd leave for a session and this is before i figured out i should run my games episodically so session one, they even said this, this feels awkward meeting in a tavern, just deciding to go on a quest together without knowing each other really like, um, also they didn't take the responsibility on themselves to establish reasons why they just decided, oh, we'll quest together because as players, we want to, it doesn't, it, the story doesn't matter. So it was where they were at in terms of what they valued out of the game, but still that, um, that campaign that campaign, I give myself a solid like 7.2 out of 10. <laughs> it was it was all right. There was that there was a through line by the end. There was a super exciting final combat. Um, you know, even though a lot of it was awkwardly paced just due to scheduling and due to player participation and due to player care. Um, this is the same campaign I TPK'd the party halfway through. Uh, with a single mind flayer because nobody had proficiency and in intelligence saves and just rolled bad. It's, it's okay. So like the, the, the cool part is like the worst that's going to happen is that you don't have every session be amazingly epic, but just because you fumble the first one, it, it's just another rep. 
I've definitely fumbled my fair share of first sessions. Uh, it's a completely different one. Dragon Mind, I killed a player right off the bat. Also not totally my fault because they were level one and they like when the troll came out of the well, they decided to try to tank the troll with like 10 hit points and like <laughs> they just trusted their armor class. But, you know, it's it's OK. Like it <laughs> at worst, it's OK. At best, it's awesome. I think the core of Dungeons and Dragons is puzzle and encounter design. I'll draw from favorite movies, video games, books, anything to create a one-of-a-kind play experience. When you start with a solid framework, all you need is to grab your best friends and hilarity ensues naturally. I'm Sully, dungeon master and host of the podcast How Friends Roll, a 5th edition actual play podcast of micro-campaigns featuring a rotating cast of characters. Come join our table. How Friends Roll is available wherever you get your podcasts. Now, uh, speaking of speaking of uh, campaign design, uh, I was thinking we could talk a little bit about quest design and what you can do to make sure that your quests feel interesting and unique and not just tropish. Because it's very easy, especially in like a fantasy, like medieval world uh, setting, like Faerun. Um, it can be it can be easy to fall into the old habits of a fetch quest or you know, find the MacGuffin thing, you know, like it's, it's one of those, I don't know. I, I think it's one of those lost arts that DMs just kind of pick up on the fly as opposed to investing time in researching how to design a successful quest, because you can do that. You can research it and you can find, you can make it easier on yourself by looking up how quests uh, succeed at certain things. And so I actually have a website here that um, I was looking at for this campaign, uh, which is uh, masterthedungeon.com. And uh, this is not sponsored. Um, and it has some interesting stuff here that I think is really useful, actually. Um, like it tells you about the anatomy of a like a Dungeons and Dragons side quest. Uh, and like, I, I think I, I mean, they call these side quests, but honestly, I would I would not just call them side quests. I would use them in your overarching story. Like this is just good quest design, you know? So uh, I thought we could break that down a little bit and I sent you the link so you can check it out as well. Um, but, you know, again, this is coming from somebody else who's probably a lot smarter than me in terms of like <laughs> uh, explaining how these things work psychologically and in game design. So there's, uh, so the D&D side quest, so a typical side quest is short, uh, usually about one session missions, which is great for me because that's kind of what I want. I want it to be a beginning, middle and end in the same session uh, or two. Uh, they are completely optional. Well, no, I'm going to ignore that part. I'm going to use I'm just going to use this for my main stuff. Um, uh, it, completely optional and do not affect the main storyline. I think that's silly. I think they could affect the same storyline. Not a problem. Um, typical side quests again. So they're, this person is saying they should be not high risk or lethal. I agree with this, uh, unless it's like a finale or there's been tension that's building up to a point. I don't think you should necessarily have like a high risk lethal, uh, quest because just because, you know, just because of scaling, you know, um, 
uh, just to cut in for a second, unless that's what the players want. Um, I just had a very interesting conversation with a player and for a while, our styles have really not been matching up and it was finally articulated because they were really trying to figure out what was bothering them about how I was running games. And it was the fact that they, what they wanted out of the experience was to feel intellectually challenged. Um, and also that their character, if they messed up, could die. That's what they wanted was of super concrete, harsh consequence for messing up. And I wasn't interested in that game anymore. Uh, I don't want it to be, you know, you rolled to die wrong once and your character's dead. So um, I, I would just say that if, if the players are asking for that, that's a little different. Also, I find that's not, this is a, in, of all the players I've played with, this is like one player that's felt this way. I haven't met a lot of others that feel the same way. Yeah, and you can make these things lethal if you want to, um, but not just through like damage. Uh, you know, you could uh, employ the uh, use of system shock, which is a variant rule that we covered here. You can also employ the use of lingering injuries, uh, where you know they have to get it healed or something like that. Like there are ways to employ consequences uh, into your into your like dangerous quests without directly challenging the uh the hp like the overall hp and and killing your players or something like that because of luck mistakes um so uh and then uh the side quest should also provide players with long-term benefits i think this is fine you know xp gold items is the example they give here i think that's a good point you know i, I think it also should potentially when you when you're designing your quest um my reward for this besides that kind of stuff would be potential plot hooks uh, coming up with something that will lead players to be interested in exploring uh, another facet of your world or another or maybe a clue to the overarching story, you know, something else, something new that's going on. So I, I personally think that's a that's a good point. Now, moving forward, there are several there there. This document provides seven basic types of quests. Uh, and note, they don't call it side quests in that title they just say quests yeah um, so these don't have to be side quests these are just i think that this is the important part right here like the core of the document yeah i agree this is like much more interesting to me um so first of all you have your fetch quests this is where your players must obtain the MacGuffin, and this may be an item a material or an individual and i kind of like that um like a rescue mission even um but i think there's actually one around here that's similar uh, and then they have the kill quests. So the players must go kill something or stop something from from continuing to go on. So like, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe a dragon moves in or something like that. And the dragon is causing a lot of effects indirectly uh, that are, you know, messing with the ecosystem or causing issues for like farmers and stuff like that. And so the players are recruited to go and kill that dragon uh, or at least get it out of there uh, in order to, um, you know, make make life continue. Uh, next, you have your escort quests. Um, the players take an NPC somewhere while keeping them safe. I like this one. I think it's a neat one. Um, it gives you a lot of opportunity to have your players discuss, uh, or not discuss, but get to know the NPC if they're a prominent NPC, or get to know more about the world through their interactions with the NPC while they're moving. Um, now there are also delivery quests. 
The players deliver a non-NPC object somewhere safe. Sounds about right. Um, then we have our push the button quests. I like this one. This is a funny one. Uh, so basically, it just means that the players are going to go and do something like activate a magical stone or complete a ritual for uh, the purposes of a greater uh, effect. Um, I think this is a good one. Um, definitely. Uh, actually, I have a lot of thoughts on these, but I'm, I'm going to continue reading these before I start um, uh, expositing or expanding on these rather. Uh, so then we have uh, mystery quests. The players solve a problem through communication and gathering clues. And lastly, we have the lore quests. The, some, uh, some part of the story or world is explained through a journey or series of events. Um, and these, yeah, it actually says this uh, in the next uh, paragraph that these seven quests are not unique to side quests. They are actually seven types of quests that exist in all Dungeons and Dragons games. Uh, while there are other types of quests that occur, these ones are like most exclusively a hybrid of the seven. And that's actually what I was going to bring up, which is that when designing a quest, it's it's nice when the players don't explicitly know like what quest design they're going for until like they're in the middle of it or something. So like if it's a fetch quest, I think, I think it's nice to, to say to the players, like, I need you to retrieve this and something else. That way it's, it's putting like a spin on the typical quest type that you're using. And honestly, I like the idea of having hybrid quests. So like I would do like a fetch quest, they fetch this item or material or whatever, and then they have to deliver it. That's one way to do it. Or they fetch it and then they have to, uh, you know, and then it's got something to do with like the lore of the world or something like that. You can, um, or a fetch quest and a kill quest. I wonder what that would look like, to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. The So you, you started talking about exactly what I was thinking, which is actually, I would even go so far to say that like creating compelling quests using this kind of framework you want to do at least three at a time um and this is how that would look so the fetch quest is you have to go retrieve a relic hidden in a temple that relic is guarded by a monster but you only know legends about the monster nobody knows what it really is so it's combining fetch quest kill quest mystery quest lore quest like all of those at the same time so the idea being that, you know, to get the item material or individual, you have to kill something, right? You have to, you have to fight, you have to combat as part of that combat, you might have to solve some kind of problem through communication and gathering clues. Um, let's just say the thing guarding the relic is a, is a golem. Your fighter goes to hit it with a sword and the sword deals zero damage. It's, it's immune to that damage type. Um, what can we do? How can the party members communicate and what clues can we have to solve the puzzle? Well, maybe the golem has like a, a red orb in its chest or something, you know, or it's got like an eyeball symbol on top of its head, you know, like Zelda. So now it's you have to meet the armor class to hit that specific thing. Um, and that's how you deal it damage. Or maybe the fighter's role is to distract it now and try to use the dodge action while the um, wizard casts a spell that can damage it. Um, and then the, the lore part is just that you learn more about the world. Maybe, maybe this relic, uh, the golem, was created by a lost culture 
And that last, that lost culture uh, will end up playing a minor or major role in the overarching story. So the just, I, I really like this because it simplifies some core archetypal concepts. Um, but the fun is seeing the unique ways like Legos that the dungeon master can put these quests together. Um, I think that what's, what's interesting here is as well uh, as, you know, coming up with unique quests. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, coming up with a unique quest that is related to the characters is going to become even more immersive. So, you know, coming, if you have certain plot hooks that you're interested in exploring, or you're interested in at least dangling out there to see if the characters are interested, then uh, these quests can be good ways to do it. So, you know, um, let's say, uh, let's say there's like a faction, right? Let's say there's a faction that is related to one of your characters and uh, the character is trying to know more about that faction or they're, or maybe maybe they're not. Maybe they are trying to know more, but maybe that's not what's going to happen in this quest. The the bit of lore could be a clue as to what the faction is like like doing at the end of the quest, like with this golem thing. Like say that red orb is actually, you know, it's it's an artifact from this faction that they've left behind or that they intentionally put there or something like that. Um, I think I'm going in circles a little, but uh, my my point being that I think that you should you should design your quest uh, with this stuff in mind, where it's like, what kind of quest is it? What what other quests can I weave into it? What other you know elements can I weave into it? And then you should try to say, okay, but how can I? add some character interaction into this quest? How can I add some exploration into this character's story uh, into the quest? And I don't think you should design, unless you're unless the party is specifically going for uh, one of the characters, uh, you know, backstory questions or wondering about, you know, their goals and stuff and want to explore that with that character. I don't think you should design your quests with um, with that stuff in mind from the, from the beginning. I think you should start with what kind of quest haven't I done today, done up to this point, and which one sounds like it could be a lot of fun, and then uh, go through the go through the um, design of the story through there. Yes, I one hundred percent agree, and in fact, I'd like to see if I can lay out kind of like a roadmap for uh dms because having been immersed in the community for a number of years now listening to what different content creators say what their advice is comparing that to my own experiences and their experiences there is this worship of integrating player backstories into the overarching story and honestly a lot of times that's not what players want it's also coming from a good place. Really what they want is to create stories that are meaningful for their players. And one of the one of the intuitive ways to do that is to try to integrate a player's character's backstory into the quest. That's not always what the player wants though. So there have been plenty of times where we've seen this done well, you know, like there have been times where I know Rowan's backstory we explored for kind of like a four session offshoot campaign. That was very meaningful to you. You know, um, we had another player we discussed yesterday that 
you know, she had a character that had amnesia um, and she was okay basically with the backstory being whatever it was. But what ended up happening is in an attempt to make a story arc feel meaningful, her DM created this. It was like a 12, maybe 16 session dive into this one character's backstory, putting the spotlight on her, really revealing all these what some players may interpret as deep, meaningful interactions. This player was super uncomfortable being in the spotlight and feeling like she was taking away from the stories of everybody else who basically had to just sit and watch these interactions unfold. And they ended up not feeling meaningful. They felt, I can't find the word for it, but they, they felt intrusive, you know, to both the other player's time and to the fact that she didn't want the spotlight put on her. So what I found have, has worked very well because there have been times in my latest session I've feel I've successfully integrated a, a player character's backstory meaningfully inside of the front story of the campaign is to do what you just said, is start with neutral quests that the party is involved with and then seeing what the individual characters react to as meaningful, you know? Um, uh, an example I can speak to, uh, Adamus ran a Grey Owls game and there was some session where we were doing something and it really didn't have to do specifically with like any of the players backstories or anything, but there was a child that was in danger and Molotov, who was a barbarian, got very like emotional, like, like really protective and come to find out one of that character's personality traits is that he would get very protective if a child was in danger that's like a specific thing that you now find meaningful. So if you want to create further meaning for that, that character, not that you should be putting children in danger in every quest that you have, but it would be an element that would make them perk up, you know, or if, you know, and it's just, sometimes the players don't even know, like, I know that one of the things you did as part of the session zero was ask us nine deep questions for us to start to figure out who our character is. And there is a lot left to be explored and discovered of a character mid play. So a lot of times there will probably be times, you know, you'll have us run a quest and my character will be like, Ooh, that like, he gets really passionate about this random element of the quest that popped up, you know, and now you can take a look at that and help inform what the meaningful quests are going to be. I think a lot of times DMs mistake backstory quests for meaningful quests. A lot of times their intuition is correct. One of the best ways to hook a player is by honoring the creative backstory that they have developed. That's not necessarily the case though. And a lot of times the most meaningful stories are the ones where players discover something about their character mid-campaign. Yeah, and that's like that's what I really have been trying to get more into lately is actually front story. I used to really write in depth, like creative short stories for my character uh, that I would be playing for a given campaign because I wanted them to have a meaningful, you know, background that they were coming from, uh, a meaningful backstory, and and I and that was also something that I really enjoyed was was uh, putting time and effort into creating a little short fiction. And, uh, and I still like doing that, but I, now I feel like I've gotten it out of my system. You know, I don't really need to do that anymore 
and I don't really want to do that anymore because it takes so much time. Uh, and creating a short fiction is great, but you know, it's usually pretty isolated. So uh, unless I have a character that I'm really interested in exploring off, you know, uh, during downtime or whatever, uh, then uh, then I probably won't really be doing that. And, you know, that's the that's why I've looked more towards the front story. And that's something that I've been doing with Moo, especially. Well, and that's why a lot of the players didn't really have an answer to that supernatural forces question, because they want to discover who their character is rather than have an idea of what that character's already been through. Yeah, that's a really good point is, um, you know, so when you've played D&D for a while, I feel like there's, you know, there's a maturity. You, you grow through playing the game. You start off with the, you know, the edgy rogue that sits in the corner and broods, you know, the very typical trope thing, because it sounds cool. Like you've never played the game before. You know, that sounds really cool. I definitely want to try that. You know, I've seen freaking Lord of the Rings. Right. I mean, I, I still play that character, but, <laughs> you know, I also play other characters. Yeah, exactly. Not that you that not that you abandon those characters as you grow, but as you mature, you find more nuanced ways to make your characters and uh, it becomes more interesting to explore themes that you weren't really expecting that make it a little bit more three dimensional. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, to speak from the player side of it uh, and, and just speaking to what you just said. Um, I, I find that one of the most interesting ways to develop characters I have now is like you said, to start with these big themes. So my, the character I'm about to play in your custom game doesn't have more than a page long backstory. I developed enough to figure out what would motivate him and, you know, what might drive him or bigger ideals. I plan on discovering more about him when I finally get to the table and start rolling dice and playing, then develop a more in-depth backstory after. So, and this was the same, that, that player I just mentioned earlier, this is all the same player, by the way, um, who will never listen to this podcast. And if she does, hello. But, uh, you know, one of the things I, I saw was while everybody else in Giris had this pretty fleshed out backstory. She was the only one who didn't. And this was the exact method she used. She started with, I want to play an Aladdin type street rat with maybe these like, like two or three characteristics. She started playing, really discovered a lot about her character and kind of filling in the blanks as she played and has the party interacted with her and has NPCs interacted with her. Then she started a backstory. She started like a 10 page backstory. And then in between every session, she started filling in those in between times more with more and more detail, further discovering through almost solo D&D play without the dice rolling. And eventually, like now that's an 80 page document um, and she has a very fleshed out backstory that was triggered by the discovery process of front story. So um, totally agree that, you know, start start with big concepts, let yourself discover your character, then you can fill in the backstory parts later, too, which which creates some interesting uh, continuity challenges as well. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, you know, I think that's I think that's what really excites me lately about playing certain characters. Um, I mean, with Moo, you know, I didn't um, 
I didn't have like a huge backstory. I knew where he came from or whatever, but like I didn't I didn't have like motivations for joining joining the Swift Guard. It was kind of just like a like a eh, you know, moves moves one of those like he he's not antisocial. He's just like neutral. He's a very neutral kind of guy when he's in his uh, you know, in control of himself. Um and so I think that you know, it's the joining the Swift Guard felt like the right thing to do, but he didn't know why or anything like that. And uh, I, I like moments in the story where I just like inspiration strikes and I just do this random thing. Like there was a moment during downtime during the game where Moo was like, going to go and sit in a park while I wait for the train to come, you know, going to go stand by this tree and just stare at it. Um, and like nobody engaged him in like why he was doing that, but that was fine. You know, I set it up in such a way that it was like, it's like, it's said more than I wrote, you know, it's, it was a, uh, say less, say more with less kind of moment. Uh, where he was just like staring at this tree and everybody knows he's a ranger. So he must be doing something, some ranger things. I don't know. Uh, and I'm sure he'll say it to us if, if it becomes important, you know, and over time, I just like developed that scene into a few other things. Um, not only was he staring at the tree, but on a, you know, as the days went by, um, that tree, you know, it was an oak tree. It just, it bloomed and it made acorns. And eventually one day he picked up an acorn and that was what he was interested in then, uh, at that point, like just very like thoughtful, but not like intricate, you know, not detailed. It was, it, it gave the impression that there was more going on in the story, even though I hadn't really thought about how this might pertain to his backstory. I just, I just said, this feels right. You know, it feels like something that might happen. And, you know, when other players start to pick up on that, I'm sure there will be more to it. Like that one time he wrote, uh, when he had that monologue, that brief monologue, uh, where he was kind of like in this trance state, um, it's actually, you know, coming back around. I was surprised. I didn't think it would, but um, in this latest session, uh, themes from that monologue were occurring and it was just out of the blue. You know, I was like deciding like, what feels right here? What should I add to this scene to make it feel more, you know, exciting or immersive or detailed or something. And it just came out like that. So I'm really excited to see how the second half of this season goes with the, with Gears to, for, for that character, but um, cycling back around just a little bit here, the whole point of this discussion, uh, these anecdotes is really just to show that um, you don't necessarily have to explore a character's backstory during the campaign if they're not interested in that. And you can leave it up to them what they want to reveal about their backstory, even if you're creating plot hooks that might hook into that. But it also might not, you know, create having floating plot hooks like these don't need to be character centric hooks. These can be clues to the overarching story. These can be uh, leads to what the next quest might be, what the next move, the next step might be. Uh, even if you don't have a B, you know, a BBEG yet, a big bad evil guy or whatever guy or gal. Um, and I, I think it's important to keep that in mind as a dungeon master that 
you should do what's fun. You know, fun is the what's fun for everyone at the table. That's what you should prioritize when creating your quests. So if like if they really don't like, uh, you know, fetch quests, I mean, fetch quests is such an overdone trope. Spice it up a little bit. Like John said, you know, add a few other quests in, add a floating plot hook here or there, uh, hinting at other forces outside of their perspective at this moment and that and, and see if any of them stick. And if they do stick, maybe you can tie them into the backstories. Maybe you can tie them into the front story. This character is clearly becoming this kind of a person. Maybe I should push them a little further and see how the story unfolds that way. So, you know, if there is anything to be gleaned from this, this conversation uh, for our dear listeners here, I think that it is, it is just that, you know, design your quest to make them fun and interesting first. Uh, and intriguing to the to the to the player characters, and then add your add your plot hooks, add your story hooks, add your backstory hooks, um, and see where it goes from there. But do be aware that it is up to the players to reveal backstory. N- nothing, you know. There are a few things that are more. Well, I wouldn't say depressing, but uh, more problematic for me as a player when when. Uh, when a DM reveal, thinks that it's time to reveal something when it's not. And that hasn't happened to me, by the way, <laughs> not yet. Um, but just to be clear, John, because you're my DM. Um, yeah. The, that hasn't happened to me yet. But I can imagine it happening and it being like, wow, that's unfortunate. Because I did actually, I, st- I was starting to get something going here. And it's just, it's too soon to, to harvest that fruit. On the other side of that, too, if you're super obvious that you have secrets or if the party knows you're withholding information for the players out there, recognize that that's going to influence your team dynamics and their trust in you as a character, because I've definitely seen where it's very obvious that a player has a secret that may end up being harmful to the party or their goals. And that player deciding not to share it, whether it's as a player, as a character or both, and then them getting upset when the secret comes out, not at their choosing. So, you know, it also depends on like the severity of the secret. Um, An example being Anton has a secret. It's not a very important secret. Um, So if it comes out and I imagine it coming out actually at my DM's discretion, You know, that's just part of the game, but it's not anything that's really going to affect the story, at least not yet, I don't think. So it's pretty, pretty cool. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. Dragon Mind is brought to you by Incendium D&D, which you can follow on social media with the links in the description below. Our theme song, J-Pop, is brought to you by Fezlian Studios, and you can check out more of their awesome work at fezlianstudios.com. This podcast is also a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network. To discover more excellent TTRPG content like this, head to darkmoorpodcasts.com. Have an awesome day and an awesome time at the table. Bye-bye now. What becomes possible when you let go of your preconceived notions on what makes a great story?
What becomes possible when we see tabletop role-playing as more than just a game and also as a vehicle for personal growth and development? What becomes possible when you let your characters live through your gameplay? This is the DM Shower Thoughts Podcast, a proud member of the Darkmoor Podcast Network, available on iTunes and Spotify.